Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, as we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah for how you've spoken to us so far. We ask this morning that once again you would speak, show us the reality that Israel brings before us, the reality in our own lives. And Father, point us to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is our Saviour and in whose name we pray. Amen. What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? was the question that Dennis asked me on Tuesday at our English class. Uh, It's not the question that I normally expect to get. We were in in a lull in the, the lesson, I don't know, whatever it was we were learning about, online shopping or something like that, and I was sitting with Dennis doing a bit of one-on-one work and he says to me, what is the purpose of life? Is it, is it to be good, to, to be the best sort of person I can be or, or what? Well, I thought about it for a bit and I said, Dennis, the end is what determines the beginning." And Dennis said to me, I don't understand. (laughs) All right, fair enough, Dennis. I said, look, whatever comes at the end, whatever the goal is, whatever the end point of your life is, determines what you do now, what the purpose now is. And Dennis said to me, I don't understand. (laughs) Dennis's English is quite good, but... I said, all right, let me cut to the chase. He likes his sayings. He liked that bit of it. I said, at the end of our life, each one of us is going to stand before God. And God will judge. Those who have done good will be rewarded. Those who have done bad will be punished. Then I thought about that for a while. And just as he was going to kind of, I said, but there's a problem. The Bible says... Every single one of us, that includes you, Dennis, that includes me, that includes all the other students in our English class, every single one of us is going to fail. We're going to be found to be bad and be punished. And Dennis thought about that and he, yeah, I suppose. I said, see, you think about your life, Dennis. God demands perfection and you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. In fact, even if from this moment on you could somehow manage to do everything right, you've still got the past to deal with. You'd still fail. The Bible says all of us are bad. It is impossible for us on our own to please God by obeying him. And it's illustrated so powerfully for us in Nehemiah 13. Now it's okay, we'll come back to that conversation. I didn't leave him just there in case you're wondering. But let's turn to Nehemiah 13. Where we see so starkly this reality that people attempting to please God fail. It's impossible. Now, if you were here last week and you, you kind of, if, if we had finished at Nehemiah chapter 12 and we just left it at that, you, you could be forgiven for thinking that maybe it was possible. Maybe we can obey God such that it will please Him. If you remember Israel in that last section, they they were just in this religious ecstasy, this time of of apparently we're going to get it right finally. They'd confessed their sin to God. They'd committed themselves to His ways. 
in their religious life, in their family life, in their business life. They were celebrating with great joy who God is and what he had done for them. If we'd stopped at chapter 12, maybe you could be forgiven for thinking that it was possible. And then we came to chapter 13, didn't we? We just had to go and spoil the party. I don't know what you felt as it was read for us. I've I, I read it a bunch of times and every time I just the, the sense of frustration just builds. Are you kidding me, Israel? The exact things that they had just promised in their covenant that they would obey God, all the things that they said they wouldn't do, well, guess what they're doing? Just a chapter later. Oh, have a look. Let's read through it again. Jump down to verse 4 in chapter 13. Right. Firstly, temple life, religious life. They had promised to set aside the temple for God, to provide for the Levites so that they could go about the business of God. What happened? Verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest, who had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, he was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, if you remember the story so far, Tobiah is one of the three bad guys. Okay, We hear Tobiah and it's a little bit kind of boo-hiss. It's a little bit, right? He's the priest associated with Tobiah. The priest had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. No sooner as Nehemiah left town when he's Eliashib, who by the way is the priest. I mean, he's the guy who's supposed to be looking after the temple. And what does he do? The room that's supposed to put all of the provisions for the Levites. And in comes to buy. Oh yes, in you come to buy. Use it as a storeroom by all means. They didn't need the storeroom anymore, didn't they? If you look down at verse 10, I learned that the portions assigned to the Levites hadn't been given to them that all the Levites and singers responsible for the services had gone back to their own fields. Fair enough. No one was providing for them. They needed to eat. They went back to work. Now, Nehemiah had been absent, right? He comes back and he sees what's going on and he's just, what are you doing? You just promised. And now you are... And so he comes back, verse 7, he learns about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. By the way, Tobiah, we don't even know if he was descended, the proper descendant of Israel. I mean, back when they were doing the genealogies, they came to Tobiah and they kind of went, oh, we can't prove his ancestry. He was the one who was trying to get them to stop building the wall. Verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I'd like to see his face when he came back. And said, Is that my couch? What's, what's it doing on the road? I gave orders to purify the rooms and I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with grain offerings and incense. Verse 11, I rebuked the officials, asked them, why is the house of God neglected? I called them together, stationed them at their post and all Judah brought back in the tithes as they were supposed to. And so at the end of this first failure of Israel, Nehemiah prays. These three prayers spread throughout that underline what's happening. Verse 14, Remember me for this, O God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Israel failed. they just finished committing themselves and already they've broken what they promised. They couldn't do it. And Nehemiah, I take it, he's kind of failed as well. 
I mean, you get to the end, you get to this prayer. Remember me for this, O God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done. It's Israel was supposed to be going into this new age of blessing, of being the great nation, of once again God pouring blessings out upon Israel and it was dependent upon Israel obeying God. You just get the sense that Nehemiah, it's almost like he's trying to hold water in his hands. You ever tried to to just keep some? And it it kind of doesn't matter how good a seal you manage to get. I mean, if your fingers are as wonky as mine, it's kind of hard. But it, it doesn't... It, it sooner or later just starts to drip away and drain. And you just get this sense that Nehemiah is desperately trying to hold Israel together. Obey! Obey! The blessings are dependent upon it. And as he sees it all just crumbling, it's almost like he's going, well, well, they're failing God, but remember me at least. Please? I've, I've done the right thing, right? Israel failed at the temple. They failed in their business practices. Verse 15, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, all other kinds of loads. They were bringing it all to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I warned them against selling on that day. Furthermore, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. What are you doing, Israel? You'd promised that you were going to observe the Sabbath every seventh day, no work. You'd promised that in your business world, you were going to do what God demanded of you, provide the tithe, the 10%, every seventh year, cancel the debts. They'd promised all of this. Every time in Israel's past, when they started trading on the Sabbath, or when they turned God's house into a house of trade, you know what happened to them? Every time. And here they are again. And so Nehemiah says to them, verse 17, again, I rebuked the nobles of Judah, said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And so he puts the Levites out to work. They're back now. So he shuts the gates. He keeps them all out. And again he has this prayer. Remember me for this also, O my God. And show mercy to me according to your great love. Israel failed religiously. They failed in their business practices. And Nehemiah by now, all he's able to is kind of going to show mercy. Maybe, maybe don't weigh up all that I've done, good or bad. How about some mercy? That would be good. They can't do it. They failed at the temple. They failed in business. They failed in their marriages. We read at the start, right? as they're reading the book of Moses, they found out that the Ammonites and the Moabites are never to be admitted into the household of God. And it's it's kind of a bit racist, to be honest. I mean, these these were just two nations, two cultures, right? Have nothing to do with them. It wasn't racism per se, though. It was based off the history between these nations. And more than that, the prohibition against marrying from other races was a religious one. Every time in Israel's past, when they'd intermingled with the surrounding nations and they had brought their gods into Israel, what happened wasn't that Israel then preached their God and everyone was converted. No, Israel adopted the idols. 
and wandered away from the true and living God. The Bible doesn't have a problem with racial marriages, interracial marriages, no problem at all with that, people are people. The problem is when the people of God allow the idols of others to draw them away from the worship of the true and living God. And so, verse 23, moreover in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. they, They can't listen to God's word. They don't understand the language. I rebuked them, called down curses on them. I beat some of them there and pulled out their hair. You think he's frustrated? There's got to be some benefit to being bald. He kind of couldn't grab it. But anyway, he made them take an oath. Enough. Enough. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? That moment, the, the, the pinnacle of our history when we were just, it was all going right. And because of the gods of the surrounding nations brought in through marriage, torn apart. And so, verse 29, he prays, Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly offices, the covenants of the priesthood and the Levites. I purified the priests and the Levites. I made provisions for contributions. And his final prayer, Remember me with favour, O my God. That's, That's the last word in the book. That's as good as Nehemiah can do. Please? Can you? Maybe? Something good? Israel failed. And they had, I think in the history of humanity, I reckon they had the best crack possible at obeying God. They had these seriously motivated leadership. I mean, if you want to talk about good leaders, right? They just, they had before them truly the reward and the punishment of obeying or disobeying God. They'd just come back from exile. They knew what would happen if they disobeyed God. And they had all the promises of God before them, all the blessings waiting if only they'd obey. They were committed. They signed this covenant. They had accountability structures in place. I mean, talk about whatever you want to talk about. They had it. And they failed. They failed. And even Nehemiah failed. You get this sense with Nehemiah that that he was trying to force God's hand. God had promised that a time would come when he would gather Israel back into the land and that would happen when Israel obeyed God from the heart. And you almost sense that Nehemiah is trying to kind of put the cart before the horse, right? If I bring everyone back into Israel and we kind of get enough of this obedience stuff going, then maybe God will bless us. The promise will trigger it. Israel failed, Nehemiah failed. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with Nehemiah chapter 3? What are we supposed to do with the whole of the book of Nehemiah? Next week, the whole sermon is going to be on how to read the Old Testament. Okay, you don't want to miss that one. How do I read the Old Testament? Which is kind of, we, we probably should have done that before we did Nehemiah, right? But anyway, this is where we are. See, there's a temptation when we read the Old Testament. It's in the New as well, but it's primarily in the Old Testament. There's a temptation to just pick one of the characters in the story and read ourselves into it. To just go, well, I'm, I'm going to learn whatever lesson it is that they do. I, I'm just going to do whatever they do. 
I'll tell you the first. Next week I'm going to tell you two principles. I'll tell you the first of them this week. And the second one next week, so you have to come back for that one. Here's the first principle you've got to keep in mind as you read the Old Testament. The Bible is one big story. It's not a collection of lots of little stories with you know, a little moral, a fable, right? The gingerbread and the fox. And you've got to, you just put yourself into the story and you learn whatever the moral is. It's one big story from cover to cover. And so to understand what is going on, we have to work out where in the story are we? Where are we at in this overarching storyline that goes from beginning to end in the Bible? See, the problem with Nehemiah 13, if we're going to just insert ourselves as one of the characters, is that none of these characters are good. I can't tell you to be like Israel because they're a bunch of mongrels. I can't tell you to be like Nehemiah because he's just trying to force God's hand. So we have to understand where does Nehemiah fit in the big picture. Now to understand that, you've got to go all the way back to the start. You've got to go all the way back to Adam. So let's see. Let's see if we can work out where in this overarching story Nehemiah fits. So we go right back to the start. We go right back to Adam. And you remember the story of Adam, the first man, the first woman Eve, who sinned, who rebelled against God. And because of them, sin entered into the world so that every human being who came afterwards is a sinner. And because sin entered into the world, death came as the consequence because of it. But there was that one little promise that at some point a descendant of Eve would come who would crush the serpent's head, who would somehow begin to restore the problem. We move from Adam, we get to Abraham. And Abraham received these astonishing promises that somehow through his descendants the world would be saved. Blessing would come to all the nations. And we move from Abraham. He had kids and we had one son and his son had two sons and one of those two sons then had 12 and they multiplied and became a nation. And we get to Israel and Israel received more promises like the one we read in Deuteronomy 30. That a day would come when the true people of God would obey God from the heart. No longer external law, no longer failure, but from the inside out they would obey and that would bring about a time of great blessing. Woven into all of that is the prophets and the promises and the prophecies that they made are fantastic. That a saviour would come. One who would pay for the sin of the world. One who would send God's own... If you're sitting there thinking, how on earth am I supposed to know all of this in order to be able to understand Nehemiah 13? Well, the answer is, you've got to read the Old Testament. <laughs> and you're like, well, but hang on, but how many... Well, you've got to read all of it. You've got to read it lots. And so it's going to take you the rest of your life. Okay, there's application point number one. It's going to take you the rest of your life. But the more you read, the more you can connect the bits together the more it will help. So by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 13, this is the picture. Humanity enslaved to sin. Death reigning over all. Promises of salvation and restoration and blessing and obedience from the heart are all waiting to be fulfilled. But they haven't been. And Israel has failed. So Nehemiah, chronologically, is basically the end of the Old Testament. 
I mean, it's, it's in the middle of ours, so it doesn't help us understand that. This is the last thing that happens before there is silence for hundreds of years from God. The big picture is this, man on their own, in their endeavours to please God through obedience, will fail. Israel failed. Nehemiah failed. But, but, the one who made the promises, he will save. He will deliver. So you and I, we live on this side of the culmination of this story. We, we, we get to look back at it instead of like Israel who could only hope looking forward. For there was one man who walked the earth in perfect obedience. There was one man who fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. There was one man who met all the expectations of prophecy. There was one man who, if you get to that judgment and your good reward and bad punishment, who deserved reward. There was one. The Lord Jesus Christ. God himself entered into humanity. And what he did was to choose not to take the reward, but to accept the punishment that others deserved, that you and I deserved such that his reward might become ours. I will pay the price, he said. I will pay the penalty that they may have my reward. He died. He rose again to show that his death was in fact sufficient. And as he rose, if you remember Acts chapter 2, he poured out the Spirit upon his people. The very Spirit of God entered into lives to transform hearts that obedience might come from within. Our bad placed upon him such that his righteousness would cover us. And what does this mean? What are some implications? I've got two of them for you. The first is this. You and I, we cannot help but be like Israel. We, we can't help it. Any attempt we ever make to try to please God through our own obedience will fail. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that's true of everyone else, but I can do it. Israel failed, I mean, just because they had their thing. But I, I, I can do it. I've worked out the way. I've got the secret. I've got the path mapped out. I can... No. Something or other will trip you over. The idolatry of other gods, the greed that got Israel in their business practices, or, or maybe you're just going to disrespect God. We cannot do it. And so secondly, we must turn to the one in whom all of God's promises find their yes, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the true reformer of God's people. The one who offers you now the living Spirit of God to take what was once a dead heart and bring it back to life. To take what was once dead bones and cover them in flesh that we might live again to God. Our debt paid. 
Jesus' righteousness, ours. Do you want God to remember you with favour? I mean, we, we, don't, we don't have to have this vague hope like Nehemiah had that perhaps, maybe, I've, we can know with certainty that the very righteousness of Jesus Christ can be ours. I said to Dennis, we're all bad. Every single one of us. We can't, we can't do it. We can't be good before God. That's why what we need is a saviour. Not, not, not a good moral guide. Not somebody to teach us how to obey and be good. But somebody who will die in our place. And I said to Dennis, that's exactly what Jesus has done. He died so that the bad goes on him and his good can come to us. And Dennis thought about it for a bit. And then he said, I don't understand. Actually, his next comment showed that he did. Because he thought about it and he said, but hang on. That means I can do whatever I want. I said, yes! You got it, Dennis! That's exactly right! If Jesus pays for all that I have done, then what I do does not matter. He said, but I can do whatever I want. I don't understand. Yes! I said to him, Dennis, do you know what I want more than anything else? Do you know what I want? I want to please God. Can I do whatever I want because Jesus has died for me? Yes. And what I want is to please God. Because Jesus dying and rising transforms the heart so that obedience is no longer exposed, imposed from outside like it was on Israel. But my heart has been transformed so that what I now want is to please him, to live to his praise, to his honour, to his glory. Is that you? Have you acknowledged before God that you can't help but be like Israel? On your own, you will fail. Have you asked Jesus that his death might be in your place? Have you accepted the very Spirit of God transforming your heart so that that wonderful day that Israel could only dream of has now come where God's people obey from inside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the example of Israel written down for our sake. The warning. The reality of sin, our inability on our own to please you through obedience. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, for our Saviour, the one who dies in our place, the one who does what we cannot, the one who so generously and graciously offers his very righteousness that it might cover us. And Father, thank you that you don't leave us alone. But having saved us, you send your spirit to change our hearts. Teach us, Father, transform us. That we might live always lives that desire to please you. Thank you that Jesus' death covers our sin, our failings. And we look forward so much to the day in heaven 
when all that we are is transformed into the new self. And Father, we pray this for your glory, that your work might be known in our lives. Through Jesus. Amen.